Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Clayton. I'm the pastor here at Central. And man, that was a little crazy just now. So after the, the baptism, I'm, I'm just soaked, soaking wet. I'm back there. I got to get all my stuff from my office. And every we have like 10 doors to the office. Every single one of them is locked, not on a key. <laughs> and so I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm about to, get, I'm about to come back out here. And all these wet clothes. So I have to run and find Matt. He has to open the door for me. And I'm running down the hallway and like changing clothes like a madman. It was crazy, but I'm okay. I'm okay. I had to double, yeah, my hair's good. I didn't have to worry about that at all, at all. <laughs> Man, summer is here, isn't it? Like, it's hot. I'm, I'm sweating up here. Maybe it's because I've been running around. But summer is here. It, it is, it's humid here. Oh, man, I'm still getting used to the humidity up here in Oklahoma. And whew, But I'm ready to go. Um, I love the summer because summer means Olympic time. I don't know if you guys love the Olympics, but I love the, the, the Summer Olympics. I love the Winter Olympics. My favorite, uh, you know, kind of sports in the Olympics is swimming. I love the swimming um, portion. For one, it's because I can never swim that fast. I'm just like in awe of how fast I can swim. But also because America always wins. And so it's easy to root for them. You know, it's like, I'm going to watch that because we're just going to clean house. So, you know, I love the swimming um, aspect of it. Now, last summer, they canceled the Olympics. It was supposed to be in Tokyo because of COVID. They said, nope, we're not going to do it. That was kind of crazy. Well, they're hopefully doing it this next month, in the month of July, um, over in Tokyo still. And I'm, I'm excited to be able to, to get on NBC and watch um, all of the Summer Olympics and all of the, the events. Now, I was looking this, this last week um, online about some of, the, some of the crazy events that the Olympics has had in the past and, and some of the, the weird rules that they have for these Olympics. And so I, I got some to show you, some of the weird um, events that people actually competed for for um, prizes or for, for medals in the Olympics. So they'll be up on the screen right here. The first one is rope climbing. Like seriously, rope climbing used to be an Olympic sport. You know, that's the whole reason why you have it, you know, in your gyms when you're in elementary school, right? At, in PE. It was because of the Olympics. It was around the turn of the century, 1896 to 1932. Rope climbing was a big thing. And one year, an American won. He had no legs. It was just all arms, man. He was just like, bah, bah, bah. he was just a madman. And he won um, the gold medal in rope climbing. Here's another one. Swimming obstacle course was another, um, another event. Now, swimming obstacle course, it was, they're in a pool but they had to climb over objects like boats and stuff. So they had to climb out of, out of the water, cross a boat, and jump to the other side. They had to go up poles. They had to go underneath different objects. It was it just like, like they were in the pool at home, you know, when they were growing up. And they were just, I think they were just making up uh, events back then. Here's another one that will take you back. Tug of war. Did you know that tug of war was an Olympic sport? Yeah, it was awesome. Tug of war was from 1900 to 1920. Big thing. I think they should bring that back because that would be awesome. Here's another one. This one's kind of crazy. I hope they don't bring this one back. Town planning. Yes, I said that right. Town planning was an Olympic sport. So people would put forward like architectural drawings for uh, a city or an Olympic stadium or whatever, and people would judge and see who was the best. That sounds super boring. Okay, here's another one. Solo synchronized swimming. How, how does, I don't know how that happens. How do you synchronize Swimming solo. I don't know. But it was in the 1980s, and it was just dancing to music, which you can imagine the 80s music. I bet it was awesome. Okay, I think they should bring that back. I think they should bring it back, but it still needs to be 1980s music. You know what I mean? Here's one that didn't really work very well. Horse long jump. Horse long jump, okay? So you're thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. Well, they just get on a horse and see who could jump the furthest with the horse. The problem was 
that the horses were only jumping like 16 feet, okay? And people can jump like 30 feet. And so it just got really boring, okay? So there's, they, they canceled this one. And this was probably my, my favorite one that they used to have recently is uh, Flunkerton. You ever heard of Flunkerton? Okay, that's from the office. Some of y'all got that. Okay, so young people, you're welcome, Brady. I put that one in there for you. Um, that's not real, okay? That's just from a TV show. But uh, our, our staff loves the office, and so I threw that one there for you guys. But if you really start searching and, and looking at, uh, there's some weird sports out there, and there's some, some even weirder rules for sports that we all love. Like, I don't know if you guys like ice hockey, but it's, it's a big sport, especially up north. And and did you know that in 1910, or up, up to 1910, there, was, uh, there were two halves to a hockey game? So that's, that's, that's it, just two halves. And so um, they, would, they, would, they would skate and, and play for a long time, take a break, just like football, and then they would play in the second half, which totally makes sense, right? Everything should be symmetrical, I like that. And so you got you know, two halves. Well, what happened was is they were skating for so long, and they were creating these giant ruts in the, the ice, and it was just getting really nasty out there. And by the end of the first half and the end of the second half, they really couldn't even skate anymore. So they were just kind of running around on the ice. And so they said, instead of cleaning the ice once during the game, we need to clean the ice twice. And so they changed to, to three periods, which makes no sense to me at all, okay, in my symmetrical-like brain. Um, but that's what they did. They, they changed to, to three periods. Well, for us, talking about the, the disciples this, this summer, we call it the dirty dozen because these guys were just like us. I want you to think about the fact that, like, we have just finished period number one, okay? We just talked about the four main disciples, the, the most important guys, the, the most influential disciples. We talked about the first four, and now we are at intermission time after the first period. We've gotten the Zamboni out, you know, and we have cleaned off the ice uh, getting, getting ready, the ice is smooth for period number two, and we're going to begin to talk about group number two, the second group of disciples in influence. And in fact, when the Bible, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when the Bible describes or lists these guys, there's one man that's always listed first in this, this second group. And we think it's because he was pro probably the leader of that group, but this man was a disciple named Philip. And this morning, we're going to talk about this fifth disciple. We're going to call him Philip the Pessimist. So to begin to, to look at his story and unpack Philip, let me set the scene for you in John chapter 1. So you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. We'll be there in John 1. We'll be in John 6 um, later this morning. But in John chapter 1, it's the first week of Jesus' ministry. So he's about 30 years old. You know, he's just getting ramped up. He's starting to go in and, and preach in these different towns and there's also this guy named John the Baptist. And at that time, John was pretty famous. He had a following. Um, in fact, he had some other, he had disciples of his own. And people were, were in awe about what he was saying and what he was doing. He was a big, big deal. And people were coming to John and asking him and saying, hey, you know, who are you? And they would ask him, are you the Messiah? Um, are you Elijah, which was an Old Testament prophet? They're asking these questions, which kind of sounds funny and weird, but really what they're asking is, is they were asking him, how important are you? Just how important are you? And John the Baptist kind of takes a step back and says, hey, look, I'm not important at all. I'm not important at all. I am just pointing to someone who is way more important than me. And then right after that, Jesus shows up. He goes out to where John the Baptist is, 
And when they see each other, you got to understand that these, these weren't total strangers. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. They were born just a little bit of time apart. They probably grew up together, spent time together, went on uh, family vacations together. They hung out together. They knew each other. And so when John sees Jesus walking towards him, he doesn't turn around to his, his, uh, his followers and says, hey, guys, here's my cousin. Come meet my cousin. No, instead he says, hey, guys, come here. Come meet the Son of God. It makes this profound proclamation about who Jesus is. And that's pretty, pretty crazy to think about calling your cousin. Come y'all can think about your cousins, you know what I'm saying? You would never call your cousin the Son of God, a deity, okay? But he, he says, look, the Son of God, I know this man. I know him. And he is it. He is what we have been waiting for. And then this thing happens, this story happens in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. Here's what it says. It says, the next day, Jesus, he decided to leave for Galilee after he had met John the Baptist. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from, from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. I don't know if you caught this, but there's something really profound um, in this passage. Let me, let me read it to you again. Here's what it says. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Did you catch that? Here's what happened. This is an important biblical principle for today. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus found Philip. Jesus found Philip. I don't know about you, but I like to binge watch some things on Netflix every once in a while, you know? And sometimes you can't stop, and you're like for an entire week, you just watch something. Well, a couple years ago, a couple summers ago, I was watching um, this show called I Shouldn't Be Alive. Have you ever seen that? So it's on Netflix, man, you can go watch it. And it's just this documentary series about people who found themselves in crazy situations, and they should have died, but somehow, miraculously, they, they survived, and they lived to tell the tale. And so they made these documentary re reenacting um, the, the situations. And there was this one story about this lady named Linda. And in the 70s, she was from Pittsburgh, and she was in her mid-20s, and she decided she was going to go on this long road trip. She had a couple weeks off from work, and so she took off, and she was going to go to the Grand Canyon by herself with her little dog. She was going to go and hike and spend the night, one night at this Native American uh, village that's in the middle of the Grand Canyon. And then she was going to hike back, and it was just going to be awesome. She was going to have postcards and pictures to tell everybody um, about and put them on Instagram. Instagram wasn't a thing back then, whatever, but you know what I'm saying. She was going to have this whole story to tell. So she gets there. She doesn't tell anybody in that area where she is going, and she, which was mistake, mistake number one, okay? There's lots of mistakes in this story. So she goes, parks, and she gets out and starts walking down the Grand Canyon. And she has a full backpack, like a, a backpacking backpack. She's got um, everything she needs, a tent, a, a sleeping bag, food, supplies, water, all that stuff. She has a purse on. She's got a little dog. And she's just having the time of her life. I'm looking at all of the walls. It's just breathtaking. It is beautiful. And she goes a little bit further. And mistake number two is that she started hiking late in the afternoon. Okay? She starts hiking. She's going, and there's a, there's a trail, 
And uh, she'd seen some maps about it. She didn't have a map with her, which was probably mistake number three. And then she is going, and, and pretty soon she gets this fork in the road. And there's a sign. It's all beat up, beat up and it's kind of laying on the ground. And it's been twisted and turned. And it has directions to where the, the village is. It's either to the left down this canyon or to the right down this other canyon. But she cannot figure it out. So she sat there for a long time trying to figure it out. And she goes, you know what? I'm just going to go to the right. 50-50 shot. So she goes to the right and she begins to walk. That was mistake number four, okay? So she walks and walks and walks. Starts getting, getting late, late in the day and she's exhausted, carrying this giant backpack. You know, if you got just heavy weight on you, what do you want to do? Take it off? You know, you take it off. And so she makes mistake number whatever, five. I don't even know what number it is now. She, she takes this backpack off and goes, I think this village is just right around the corner. You know, she can just, you can just feel it. It's right around the corner. So she takes this backpack off, and she, um, she leaves everything behind. All she has is a person, a little dog, and she takes off. She loses the trail completely. It's starting to get dark. She can't find her way. She has to sleep in the middle of nowhere, out by herself with no supplies, no water, no food, no sleeping bag, no tent. And she is not there for one day. She's there for 20 days, all by herself, just completely lost, trying to find her way. No food, no water. She's scrounging around. She tried to tr climb the cliff several times. She could not get out of the Grand Canyon. She loses her dog. Her dog runs off. Smart dog, okay? She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving you, lady, okay? And so she, she, she is on, um, she's on the verge of death. She lays down. She's beat up. She's cut up. She hasn't, I mean, she's totally emaciated. And then these Native Americans were walking who lived, in that, lived there, and they see some footprints in an area where no one should have been, no tourists ever go. And they begin to follow the, these footprints, and they find this lady just curled up, ready to die. And they pick her up, and they rescue her. An incredible story. I mean, she should not have survived. And I was thinking about Philip. It's kind of the same thing that was going on with Philip. This, this lady, they, she was looking for this Native American village, and she could not find it. You know who found her? The Native Americans found her. And with Philip, Philip was, he was one of John the, the, the Baptist's disciples. So he was searching and looking for the Messiah. They were studying together. They had Bible studies out in the wilderness, and they were getting ready. They were looking at the Old Testament, trying to, trying to wait for and be able to recognize the Messiah. They were ready to go. I mean, he was searching for the Messiah. But in the middle of his searching, he did not find the Messiah. The Messiah found him. The Messiah found him. And that is something really profound that we need to kind of wrestle with today in, in our journey, in our search for God. And it is this, that no one, no person on this earth has the ability to find God on their own. We don't have the ability to do that, but instead, God finds us. Now that it's kind of theologically, you know, over here a little bit. Some of you guys might be like, mm, I'm not sure about that. But think about this. There's this crazy deep mystery of God where he gives us complete free will. Absolute complete free will where we can choose right. We can choose wrong. We can choose to sin. We can choose um, not to sin. We can choose God. We can choose to turn away from God. We have that ability, which is amazing that God would give us the ability to say yes or to say no to him. We have that ability. And the reason we have that ability is because if we did not, then we would just be like a bunch of robots where God forces us into a relationship with him. Have you ever been forced into a relationship with someone? Is there love there? No, there's no love. There's no mutual commitment. 
It's one-sided and it's broken. And yet God says, I want you. I want a relationship with you. But you have the free will to say yes or no to him. And when you do that, it gives God the glory. Your choosing gives God the glory. But on the other hand, on the other side of this, he chooses us, which is kind of crazy. I don't know how that works because it doesn't make sense in our, in our minds. But the way that, that God works, he gives us complete free will, but he also chooses those he is going to save or he wants to save. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. He's looking at his disciples and says, guys, you did not choose me. I chose you. I'm the one who made the first move, <laughs> you know, in this relationship. I'm the one who did that. But you get this? There's a reason why God chooses us. It's not just so that we can be saved, not just so that we can come into these baptismal waters. It's not just so that we can have eternal life. Here's what he says. He says, I have chosen you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. His choosing you is so that you will be fruitful and productive in fulfilling God's purposes. So the question for us is this. It's kind of a question for us to think about today is that who is chosen? Okay, if God chooses those he's going to save, who is chosen? That's, that's a deep question. People think about it all the time. Who is chosen? We'll get this. Here's, here's my belief. This morning, if you are hearing the message of the hope that is found in Jesus who died on the cross to save you from your sins and rose again on the third day, then you're chosen. If you're hearing that message, what God is saying is, I have chosen you. I've chosen you. And there's two different kinds of people in this room. Either you're chosen and you said yes to Jesus, or you are chosen and you said no to him. That's it. If you're hearing the message, you've been chosen. The Bible says that God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So this morning, if you're hearing this, if you're online hearing this, God is choosing you. He's choosing you, but he gives you this free will to say yes to him or no to him. And we want to give you that opportunity. Maybe today is the day where you need to say, you know what? You've been calling me. You've been choosing me. And today I'm going I'm to put my faith and I'm going to put my trust in you. And we can do that as soon as the service is over. May I want to invite you to take that step of faith today. Because that's what Philip did. Philip said yes to Jesus. When Jesus chose him, he said, okay. I'm all in. He left everything. He left being a, a disciple of John the Baptist. He said, you know what? I'm going to leave my home. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to go, and I am choosing you back. I'm saying yes to you. But in the middle of doing that, as he's following after Jesus, Philip, I like Philip because Philip wasn't always correct. He didn't always do things the right way. Let's look at another story in John chapter 6. Turn your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 6. There's a couple times we have some information about Philip. There's just some, a couple little passages where he kind of shows up. And in this passage about feeding of the 5,000, Philip is asked a question by Jesus directly. All the disciples around, and he looks at Philip and asks this question. Look what happens. John chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The Bible says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, 
Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do, which is awesome that the Bible would say that. Verse 7 says, Philip answered him, look, Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. That was his response. And in this interaction with Jesus, do you know what Philip did wrong? Point number two is this. Philip focused on the what ifs. That was his focus. In the middle of Jesus asking him a question, Philip focused on the what ifs. Now, like I said before, Philip, he had, he had the, his heart right. I mean, he was searching for the Messiah. He was trying to do things right. I mean, he was, he was ready to follow after Jesus. And he goes and begins to follow after Jesus. But even as a disciple of Jesus, he still had a weak faith. And in the story of feeding of the 5,000, we, we hear about it a lot. There was probably a whole lot more people than just those 5,000 because the Bible says that it was just counting the men. So it didn't count the men, the women and children. There's lots and lots of people there. You have all these disciples. You have, you have, uh, you have Peter, who is the, the leader kind of guy of the disciple. You have John, who is um, the youngest uh, the disciple. You have Judas, and he's like the financial guy, so he's got the money, and he's taking care of all of that. You have Matthew, who used to be a tax collector, so he's the record keeper guy. I mean, he just took uh, meticulous records. And then you've got Andrew, who was the evangelist, and then there is Philip. And Philip is asked this specific question, and we think he was asked this question by Jesus because he was the administrator of the group. Now, I, don't know how many, I don't know about you, but I can identify with Philip. I love to be in charge and think things through. And that's kind of how Philip was. Philip was the administrator type. He was kind of like the, the pessimist of the group. He was the one that was saying, you know, we, we can't do that. Or we, need to, we, need to, we need to turn and, and go this other way. He was the guy that when they were trying to figure out where they were going to go, he would say, oh, let me roll out my, my whiteboard and make some pros and cons list, you know. Let me figure out what is, what is good and what is bad. Let's make an informed decision. That's how, that's how Philip was. Now, Philip is just like all of us. Um, they're all kind of groups. I mean, maybe in your family or in business or wherever, um, maybe at school, there's always a, a pessimist in the crowd, you know? There's always the administrator type in the crowd. Now, our staff, I wouldn't call him a pessimist, but in our, in our staff, we have, we have one of these administrator type, and he's our administrator pastor is Matt Flint over there. So Matt's kind of hiding behind Ian, um, but Matt's back there. So Matt is kind of the, the administrator um, in, in, our, in our business meetings, in our meetings, and, and he he's calls himself the, the devil's advocate. And the kind of joke that the staff has is that Hey, Matt, um, the devil doesn't need an advocate, okay? Okay, so stop being his advocate, okay? Um, Matt, Matt is the devil's advocate. He's the guy that's saying, hey, Clayton, let me rein you back in a little bit, okay? Which I need that in my life. He's saying, you know what? We might need to, to look deeper into this decision and kind of think things through a little bit, bit different. That's what, that's what Philip was for the group. He was the bean counter. And if he had a calculator back then, it was probably one of those solar-powered calculators. So if, just in case Jesus you know, needed him to crunch some numbers to figure something out, he could pull that out and begin to crunch the numbers. And in this story, you can imagine, these 5,000 people didn't just show up. It was a slow trickle. As Jesus was healing people, he was teaching people, the word was spreading. People were coming from all these different villages, and they were starting to gather. And Philip is going, oh, no. Oh, no. He sees this family of 35 walk up, and he's like, oh, man, that family just showed up. Sometimes that happens at church, too. <laughs> I don't know. So this is, they, they, they show up. He's like, oh, man, what are we going to do with, with this group? And all these people start showing up. Before long, there's 5,000-plus people uh, gathered, and the sun's starting to go down. And he's thinking, we got to take care of all these people. 
that hospitality culture. He knew that we, they had to take care of, of everything. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, is Walmart still open? Can we go and get bread, uh, you know, for, for these guys, for all, all these people? And Philip probably had already counted. He had already had the numbers. He had already run the calculations. And his answer was, we don't have the money. There is no way this is going to happen. What he, what he was saying to Jesus is that, Jesus, it can't be done. And I wonder in our lives, have we ever said that to Jesus? When he's called us to do something, when he's asked us to take a step of faith, have we said, no, it can't be done. Jesus, it can't be done. Now, Philip, he had seen some amazing things. He had seen people healed when there was no cure. He had seen water turned into wine when there was no wine left. And when all these people showed up and there is no food, he failed to see that Jesus could take care of it. In that situation, he lost his faith. He wasn't willing to step out. He got his pros and cons list. He got his calculator out and said, Jesus, it can't be done. I mean, I was just thinking about that. In our own lives, in your life, reading scripture and then just the, the, the testimony of your life, when has God ever not come through? You know? When has he failed? When has he gone back on his word? When has he broken his promises? Has he? The answer is no, absolutely not. You read story after story in the Bible, which is a testimony for us, and then you look at your own life, it's a testimony to yourself and to other people, and you say, when has God ever broken his promise? When has he ever not come through? And the answer is, he's never done that. He always fulfills his promises. He always comes through. And when Philip said, Jesus, it can't be done, Jesus says, watch me, <laughs> you know, watch me. And thank goodness that even in the middle of, of Philip's lack of faith, God's promises were bigger. God was bigger than, than Philip's lack of faith. And he was focused on these what ifs. And, I, you know, I, I was thinking about it in my life. If I ever focused on the what ifs, let me kind of explain. When God's calling you to do something, sometimes we weigh the cost and we say, well, I'm just not sure if I want to do that. Like, I really want to hold on to the control in my life. And, you know, what if it doesn't work out? Or what if I, what if I lose this relationship? What if I lose my source of income in my job? What if I put myself out there and you don't follow through, God? What if I've messed up too much that I can't be used by you? What if you, what if you don't love me enough? Or I think some of us, we deal with this. What if you're not real, God? Sometimes, even as believers in Christ, sometimes we have these profound what ifs, what ifs in the middle of our walk of faith. And God is saying, hey, 
take a little step of faith. When he's calling you to give like you've never given before, take a step of faith. When he's urging you and pushing you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you to go and, and share your faith, take just a little step and say, I'm going to trust you. And here's what happens. When you take that little step, you guys know how that is. Most of you in this room know what it feels like. When you take that little step of faith, what happens? You survive. <laughs> You're like, whew, I'm here. It worked. I'm okay. And then you can take another little step of faith. And you're like, oh, I can do that. And before long, you're taking step after faith, step after faith. You're taking all of these, all of these steps. You know what that's called? It's called walking with Christ. Amen. That's what it's called. And what it takes for us is to put, us, put aside our what ifs and say, God, I'm going to trust you. It happens for all of us. even happens for the church. I don't know if you remember, but back in January, we, we went through um, a series, and it was, it was a tough series, man. It was rough. A lot of you guys hate me still because of that series. But we talked about, we talked about um, the new vision for, for Central, we, and we looked back, back at the past and where we've come, and it's no one's fault. This is just reality, and sometimes it's hard to look at reality. But we put up some, some, some statistics on the screen. We put up these graphs on the screen, and we ran some trend lines and looked at the way that things were going over the last 17 years here. And we, we pushed it forward, and we realized that if things do not change, if we don't take giant steps of faith as a congregation, then we ran the numbers, and in 17 years, we'll close our doors. That's what, that's what were the numbers. And a lot of times, we don't like to look at that. And a lot of times, as, as a church, not just us, but churches all over the country, all over the world, we are too focused on the what-ifs than on having faith and trusting the Lord. You know, what if we go this way and the music changes? Or I'm not sure about that. What if, what if we do this and we have people in here that aren't like us? I just don't know about that. What if, what if we make this, this big change and, and we lose some people? You start making all these what ifs. And there are church after church all around this country who are dying in their what if churches. You know? They weren't willing to take this, this step of faith. And there are people all over this country, there's people even in this room who don't have a deep walk with the Lord because they're stuck in their what-ifs. And God is saying, take a step of faith. He looked at Philip and said, hey, trust me. Watch what I can do. I'm going to take those few fish. I'm going to take those, those few loaves of bread and watch me do an incredible miracle. You can imagine what Philip felt after that going, oh, why didn't I trust him? I look back at my life, I look back at scripture, and he has never failed me yet. Why don't I trust him now? And that is the story for us today. So let me ask this question. Why did Jesus choose Philip? Why him? I think it's because he was exactly the kind of person that Jesus wanted to use. Philip was exactly the right person. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that Paul, uh, Paul was having a conversation with the Lord. He, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think God knew that he needed a Philip as a disciple 
so that it could be a testimony to all of us that even in the middle of having lack of faith and not trusting the Lord, he can still call us and he can still use us. Even in the middle of his weaknesses, he was able to do incredible things in the life of Philip. We don't know all of Philip's story, what happened at the end of his life after Jesus was, was resurrected and went back up into heaven. We don't know everything that happened, but tradition says that he, you know, he went as a missionary and, and began to, to change the world and be a, a great proclaimer of the gospel and died a martyr's death. I mean, he just went all in for the Lord and lived an incredible life of trusting and having faith um, in the Lord. I think there's two profound things that we can close with this when we look at his life. It's this, that the Lord calls people like Philip all the time. Those who are searching for God, but you know what, just don't have the faith. They, 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 they aren't trusting him completely. They're searching for him, but they aren't trusting him. He calls people like that all the time. But also the Lord uses people like Philip all the time. Lots of them. He uses them in the middle of their doubt, in the middle of their lack of faith, he still uses Philip, which is great news for me, you know? And that's great news for you. That even in the middle of your lack of faith, he will still use you. All he is asking is for you to trust him. So will you trust him with your life? Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that uh, we would be people of faith. God, that we would, even though you have called us, that we would take that first step of faith and say yes to you. Maybe there's people in this room who have continually said no. They know the message. They've heard it since they were little. You know what? They'd say, I'm just not ready. What if this isn't real? What if I'm not ready? What if it changes too many things in my life? God, I pray that you would just convict them right now that Jesus is the Lord, that he died on the cross to save them from their sins. And there is no other way to heaven, no other way to the Father except through trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross and his gift of salvation. And maybe today, God, is the day that some of us in this room, some of us online would say yes to Jesus for the very first time. And God, for some of us, we've said yes. We have this calculator. And we're always crunching the numbers. We're not really trusting you. We're not trusting you with our family. We're not trusting you with our finances. We're not trusting you with our, with our businesses. We're not trusting you with our future. And yet you're saying, just take a little step of faith. I've got you. I will hold you. I'll walk right beside you. I'll take care of you. I'll never leave you. My promise is that I'll never forsake you. I'm there for you. God, help us all to feel that, to know that, and to take steps of faith. And God, that you, God, may get the glory in our lives when we put the calculator down and we pick up our faith and we walk with you every single day even when it's difficult because your word is true and we have this testimony of our lives of you've never, never, ever not, coming, not come through. You always come through, God. So thank you. Help us to have strong faith and to trust you. 
We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.